My name's Keith. I'm an alcoholic. I um, I'm glad that a couple of people reminded me um, of uh, why didn't my sponsor want to hear my fifth step. And uh, I used to remember, but then you get to a certain age where it doesn't matter anymore, and uh, you forget that you forget. You know, when I when when I was new, um, I uh, was driving to work one day. It's a true story. And my sponsor had always given me his card, and he taped a dime to the card. And he had his, his office number was on his card, of course, and then he wrote his home number on the back of the card, and he taped a dime to the card. He said, if you ever need any help, call me. And so I'm driving to work, and I couldn't remember where I worked. And I panicked, right? And so I... Yeah. So I, I, I stopped, and I... Uh, and I, I, went to, I got this phone, and I called Dan at, at, at his office. And uh, I said, uh, he said, hello. I said, Dan, it's Keith. He said, oh, how are you doing, buddy? I said, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> and, and he said, uh, I'm fine. He said, what's all the noise? I said, I'm calling you from a phone booth. He said, your car break down? I said, no, car's fine, Dan. Uh, I just wondered how you're doing. And... Uh, <laughs> and he said... Um, he said, uh, I'm fine. He said, uh, what's the matter, son? What's the matter? And I thought, oh. I said, well, Dan, I, I can't remember where I work. <laughs> and he said, oh, you got the old I can't remember where I work problem. I said, a lot of people have had that, you know. <laughs> I never met another guy with that problem, but... Um, <laughs> it was amazing. He told me, and the minute he told me, I knew. And... Uh, I mean, I, I not only knew where I worked, I knew what I did. And uh, it was like it was all in one package. And if I could get any bit of it, I got it all. And uh, so finally, you know, he said to me, he said, you know, the book says that to pour a lot of alcohol in our brain is a very unnatural act. And he said, uh, if you ever have this problem again, he said, I'd like to make a suggestion. I said, well, I'm willing, honest, and open-minded. And he said... Uh, if you can remember to look at the front bumper of your car, you have a parking permit for the university. <laughs> and I remember thinking, where do these people learn these things? <laughs> they are so smart. <laughs> well, you know, the reason that um, Sandy gave me that he didn't want to hear my fifth step was he said to me, he said, you tend to idolize human beings. And he said, my fear is that you wouldn't be as honest with me as your sponsor as you might be with somebody else. And you know, what he told me was exactly the truth. But once I had shared it with God, myself, and another human being, I could have told anybody. So, of course, in the next week or so, we talked about everything. And I was able to tell him everything. And... Um, and, you know, we used to have this thing going where we'd, we'd go to lunch usually once a week. We'd both work downtown D.C., and, uh, and frequently we'd meet in Washington Circle and, you know, bring a bag lunch or pick up a sandwich at a deli or something, and we'd sit there and talk. And one of the things I was supposed to do was I was supposed to report to him an old idea that I had discovered. 
because, you know, uh, this whole business of changing has to do with uh, discovering old ideas that no longer work. And uh, so he, I was, you know, always on, felt like I was on trial. And uh, so I'd even make up old ideas just to keep him happy. And, um, and one day I'd completely forgotten about him. We're sitting here eating lunch. He said, well, what's your old idea today? And I said, I don't have one. And he said, there's an old idea. You think you have to have an old idea. And, uh, and so he said, you know, I discovered an old idea. And I said, really? He said, yeah, this morning. He said, what would you do if you discovered, if you knew you were dying? And it was amazing. I didn't know I had a plan in my head for what I would do if I was dying, but I did. It just came out. I said, well, I'd sell everything I had. I'd put the money in a, in a bank so the kids could go to school. And I had all these ideas. I'd travel around, go to AA meetings. I mean, I, just, I had a plan for what I was going to do if I was going to die. I didn't know I had one, but I had one. And uh, he said, you know, I was running on Capitol Hill this morning. And he said a limousine pulled up, and he said a, a, a driver got out, and then a man got out of the other side. He said they came around, they opened the back door of the limousine, and they helped this old guy out, and they're carrying his bag. And he said he was so thin, his clothes were hanging on him like a scarecrow. And he said one man was on each side of him, and they're helping him up the steps of the Capitol. And he said it was Hubert Humphrey. He said he's dying of cancer. He said, I guess... Hubert Humphrey believes God's will for him is to be a senator, regardless of what his physical state is. He said, I threw away an old idea, and the old idea was that if God kept my health and treated me the way I wanted to be treated, I'd do his will. And that was a powerful old idea in my life, because I realized how many, how contingent my dedication to God's will in my life was contingent upon having enough money, having enough of whatever it is I thought I needed to make me happy, and all the rest of it. And, uh, and it just was really, really a powerful lesson, powerful lesson. You know, um, I had an amazing discovery after I did my fifth step. Um, Ed was an interesting guy, and he took my big book, and it was a little shelf in his hotel room down there at uh, Ocean City, and he put the book up on the shelf. He said, the book says, take the book down from the shelf. So I took the book down from the shelf, and I read the sixth. You know, there's one paragraph on the sixth and seventh step in the big book. Bill changed his mind later, of course, because when you read it in the 12 and 12, it said, this is a step that separates the men from the boys. You know, because I, again, I, it must have been my philosophy training, but um, I thought that the reason I do what's wrong is I'm not sure what's right. When I know what's right, I'll do it. Right, so I'm. I take this walk for an hour. I go through the first five proposals. Have I been thorough? Have I left anything out, and all that? And I'm walking down the boardwalk, and I bump into a guy who I knew from Washington. And he starts asking me some questions, and I start lying to him. Lying was a big part of my fifth step. Dishonesty was a big part of my fourth and fifth step. And my head saying. Don't lie. My mouth's saying, you stay out of this. <laughs> my character defects were survival techniques. And my assumption that somehow once I understood it, they would be gone was dead wrong. And I believe that's what the fifth and sixth step is all about. And I talked to Sandy about it. I told him what I had done. And he said, um, he said well, I would suggest to you that um, you go to the 12 and 12, 
And uh, Oh, the other thing he had me do was write down the questions and write down the answers in the 12 and 12. How and what, uh, you know, in what way did my selfish pursuit of the sex relations damage people? Who was hurt and how and all that stuff. And I wrote down those questions and I wrote down those answers. And that was part of my, my fifth step as well. But, um, but he said to me, he said, go to the 12 and 12. And he said, get the seven deadly sins that Bill talks about. And he said, take one at a time. He said, start with pride because it says pride heads a list. And Ed had told me that any character defect I have, if I, if I look at it hard enough, I'll discover that pride is involved in it. And uh, so he said, get a good definition for each character defect. And then he gave me a little uh, spiral notebook that I put in my pocket. And every time pride reared its head, I was to jot it down. And I was to spend one week on each of the seven deadly sins. And so I went looking for some definitions. And there was a great uh, uh, Spanish writer, uh, Venerable Luis of Granada. He wrote a, he wrote a, a thing called the, the Summa of Christian Life. But he also wrote a book called The Sinner's Guide. I didn't know it was a handbook. But, um, <laughs> but in that, I think it's page 200 and something, he gives marvelous definitions of the seven deadly sins and then gives us actions we can take to undo those in our lives. It's really a marvelous book, but uh, uh, if you're interested, it's, it's been published lately by Tan Publishers. But, uh, but at any rate, I got a definition for pride and I wrote it down. And I'm thinking this won't be too difficult. And it was amazing what I discovered when I, in the sixth step, I began looking at how these character defects enter my life. I'm driving down the street the first morning, and a stoplight stops me. It's, it's like the light didn't recognize my car or something. And, uh, you know, and then I get in line in a bank, right? And I'm standing there, and that idiot in front of me pulls out one of those green bags. You know what that means. That means you're going to be there for a while, and I'm in the wrong line. And, and, and I realize that pride ran my entire life. Bill was right. Bill was right. Pride heads the list. And it was all about me. It was all about how things affect me. It's not how they affect other people. It's not anything else. It's like those people who had been waiting at the stoplight before the stoplight stopped me. They probably had some place to go, too. Probably not nearly as important as where I had to go. But uh, they had to go someplace, too. And uh, what do I care about them? And uh, they can probably even drink. And, uh, you know, life's not fair. But, um, um, but and I was amazed. And by the end of that first week, I was absolutely overwhelmed with the selfishness and self-centeredness in my life. You know, if you, if you go to uh, A, B, and C in the fifth chapter, you know, how it works, and you start on page 60, and I have them underlined, how many times the word self is used? You know, self-will, self-propulsion, self-centered, ego, uh, self-pity, self-seeking, self-sacrificing, selfish, himself, on and on and on and on. And one of the uh, things that Mike and I used to do was count the selves and see how many of them we could come up with. I think we came up with 23, but I'm not absolutely certain of that. But, um, but that's what it was all about. It was all about self. It was like life was always pulling itself and pointing at me. And so what I was able to do 
was to, and I went through all seven of those things. It took me seven weeks, and I'd jot down gluttony, hungry, or anger, sloth, on and on, right? And, um, and, and I saw that my life was absolutely riddled, right? Now I understood why Bill said what he did in this 12 and 12, that this is the step that separates the men from the boys. Um, you know, I was perfectly willing to talk about the faults of the past. I had a very difficult time focusing on the character defects that were so much a part of my character, had become so much a part of my character and my deterioration that I didn't want to recognize they were there. And, um, and it was a marvelous exercise. It helped me immensely. And, you know, if you read the original manuscript, it's the seventh step reads differently. Of course, a number of them do. But the seventh step says, humbly on our knees, ask God to remove these defective character, holding back nothing. I was so fed up with what I was. By the end of those seven weeks, I fell on my knees and wept and begged God to change me. I said, I cannot live the way I'm living. Only you can change me. I can't remove my character defects. All I can do is call them when they pop up. But I cannot remove them. And, you know, the things that are amazing about, about these steps is it begins a process of change. It's absolutely astounding. I once sponsored a guy, this is many years ago, I sponsored a guy who couldn't talk. He was so anxious that he couldn't talk. And he looked like a fish. He would go... And, um, and if, if I got a call and nobody said anything, I knew it was him. <laughs> so I just talked to him for a little while, and I put the phone down, go do something, come back, pick up the phone, talk to him a little while longer and everything. And, uh, and um, we, we went through the book and went through the steps. And, uh, and, uh, and I, I, like I'd say to him, I'd say, well, goodbye, Bobby. He'd say, bye. That, that was the extent of his conversation. And um, so... Um, he does his fourth step, and he's going to come to my house for his fifth step. So I figure I better take a week off work or something. But uh, so we're we're sitting at the table, and I thought I'd loosen him up a little bit. And I said, you know, a lot of times the sex stuff is the hardest stuff to talk about. I said, why don't we start with the sex stuff? And he looked at me, and his eyes were real big. I said, why don't you tell me the part about the uh, midget and the goat first? He looked at me, and he said. How'd you know about the midget and the goat? <laughs> and I said, oh, no, and I looked down. And I looked back up, and he's looking at me. He's got a big smile on his face. He said, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> and he had, you know. And now I'm telling you, he rattled off his fifth step. It was absolutely amazing. He just rattled it off. Uh, in 1989, I was living, uh, still living in Fayetteville, North Carolina, in a little house on a golf course with my beautiful wife, Julia. And uh, I get a phone call from this guy. He's a lead salesman for a huge corporation. Here's a guy who couldn't talk, and he was a lead salesman for a huge corporation. You know, when they used to say, the old man will drink again, it's true. The spiritual awakening induces a profound personality change. We are different people. We get to drag our gifts with us, 
our talents and that sort of thing. Those things don't change. But our personalities do change. I mean, there are personality traits, of course, that, that we hang on to and things. But, but we are different people. And uh, one of the great things about that and about the sixth and the seventh step is that I get to keep working at being different. And in the tenth step, we talk about how, in the eleventh step, we talk about how some of that happens. But, you know, like I say, after, once I've taken the third step, it's no longer my right to judge me because I no longer belong to me. It's my right and my responsibility to judge my behavior, to judge how my character defects enter into my life and how they get in the way of my being of maximum service to God and to those people about me. But I no longer have the right to beat myself up. You know, um, the, um, I believe that the most difficult step I've ever taken is the eighth step. Now, that's, it sounds so simple. It said, we made a list of persons we had harmed, became willing to make amends to them all. Sounds very simple. You know, I have my fourth step, and from my fourth step comes most of my amends list, right? And uh, I, I'm not into the new way of doing the fifth step. You know, we don't go out in the backyard and burn our fourth step so that our character defects go up in smoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a hard time finding that smoke to get those names on your A-step list, you know. You know, and uh, yeah, and uh, so uh, what I did was uh, uh, I, I I made the list, and uh, and then I took the list to my sponsor Sandy, and I went through each person on the list and explained to him why I thought I owed him an amends or her an amends, right? And we would talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And, you know, the 12 and 12 is pretty specific. It says we go back as far as our minds can carry us. And my job is to glean everything I can from that relationship so I can learn more about how not to do that in the next relationship. My old buddy Bob Brown used to say, I'm not the man I used to be, and I never was, you know. And he also used to say, I used to think I had 30 relationships. I had one relationship 30 times. What he was saying is once we're entrenched in our character defects, we always repeat our behavior. We repeat our behavior. We repeat our behavior. And each relationship is exactly the same as the one before it. And, um, and you know, one of the things that, uh, that helped me so much was when Sandy explained to me that uh, getting, becoming entirely willing means forgiving everybody everything. That's why the eighth step is the most difficult step I ever took in my life. Forgiving everybody everything, even them. And, uh, you know, like I, I had to sing against religious people. I used to take great glee if a minister got into trouble, particularly if they made it on TV. You know, I mean, I, I just got a lot of enjoyment out of that and a lot of satisfaction and hypocrites and all that business. And uh, so I, Dick's story touches me so when he went to the church to make that amends. And uh, on my A-step list were religious people. And I thought, man, where am I going to find a religious person? And uh, then I remembered that uh, Mike and I used to go on silent retreats down to Loyola Retreat House. And um, 
And I knew that one of the retreat leaders down there was a young priest who I'd taken some theology courses from. And I knew he was young and hip, and he would understand the, the deep significance of this terribly humble act I'm about to perform. <laughs> so I figured I'll go down and make amends to him. And uh, so I drove down there, and I couldn't find him. But I kept going by this room, and there was an old man sitting in there in a rocking chair with a, with a uh, blanket over his lap. And he's sitting in his rocking chair, and he's reading his breviary. And uh, finally it occurred to me that maybe I'm supposed to talk to this old man. And I knocked on the door, and he said, uh, can I help you, son? And I said, yes, father. I said, I uh, would like to talk to you if you have a few minutes. He said, of course I do. And he, and he got a rocking chair, and he pulled it over. So we're facing one another, and he's sitting there, and we're sitting there rocking. And, and I told him my story. I told him why I was there. I told him the horrible things I'd said about people like him and uh, how I'd criticized them and uh, found fault in anything they ever did and on and on. And he sat and listened to me. And he got up out of the chair, and he came over, and he pulled me up. He put his arms around me, and he began to weep. And he said, son, God sent you. I said, excuse me? (laughs) He said, I've been a priest for 50 years. He said, I have just discovered I have an illness that's going to allow me to go home soon. He said, I was just sitting here talking to the God of my understanding. And I said to him, where have I failed to serve you? Where have I failed you? And he said, too many times during my priesthood. He said, I hung around with the 99 who agreed with me. And I didn't go after the one who was lost like my higher power told me to. He said, I'm sorry, son, you had to be out there all alone. And I began to weep. And I'm driving back. I had to pull off the road two or three times. Here's a guy, something on the end of a stick, who's being used by God to heal a man who for 50 years had done the best he could a day at a time. How can that happen? It can happen because I was living in God's world and I could be his instrument. You know, that's what amends is about. It's about fixing the things that are broken. You know, I had an officer when I was in the Marine Corps who befriended me. He was a wonderful man. And... um, He's the one who worked hard, and he uh, coached me through uh, interviews and things like that, and, and, um, and he, uh, I, I worked hard to get a commission and to get an appointment to go to officer's candidate school in Quantico, and, uh, and without him, it never would have happened. Number one, I never would have thought I was capable of doing it, and he assured me that I was capable and competent. He said, you're the finest NCO I know. He probably didn't know very many, but uh, <laughs> but uh, and uh, but he coached me through all this stuff, and um, and I was ready to uh, get the appointment. I had to would have had to extend my enlistment to get the appointment. I'd have gone in August, and my discharge was up in July. Uh, in uh, April of that year, I was in a combat situation, and I led a patrol in a blackout. I don't remember going out. I don't remember coming back, and. Uh, and it so terrified me the next day. I woke up with a flak jacket on. I was fully clothed. I had a forty-five in my holster. There were three rounds missing out of the magazine. It was around in the chamber, and a hammer was back. I almost never slept like that. And um, 
And I'm supposed to explain to the captain what happened on patrol the night before, and I had to find somebody who was on patrol with me to explain to me what happened so I could explain to the captain. I was so terrified, I turned down the uh, appointment, and I took my discharge, and I got out. And, um, and I never told this man. I just disappeared. And he was on my list. He was on my list for a long, long time. And one day, I'm, and, and one of the things I did with this list at Sandy's suggestion was I got these little cards, three by five cards, and everybody on my list got their own card. And every morning, and I would jot down on the card any thoughts I had about it because it says we go back as far as our minds can carry us. And, um, and, uh, and I only had a few cards. I was sober 18 years by this time, and I only had a few cards. And I'm in, the, in my den... And I'm stretching. I'm getting ready to go for a run. And, uh, and uh, what I do is in the morning, I go through those cards and pray for whoever was there that I forgive them anything. If I have anything against them, even if I'm not aware of it, that I forgive them. And I'm, uh, I had gone done that that morning, and I only had a few cards left. I only have one left now. And, um, and I still pray about it. But uh, I... Uh, Remembered, I'm stretching, and I remembered he and I were on the fantail of a ship in the Mediterranean. And I remember him telling me, I graduated from Notre Dame. One day I'm going to live where I can see the Golden Dome. And I called South Bend, Indiana. He lived across the street from the university. And I called, and his wife answered. And I said, you won't remember me, but uh, my name is Keith Lewis. She said, oh, Corporal Lewis, of course I remember you. Brian talks about you all the time. And... And, um, and I said, is he home? And she said, uh, he's out for a run. And uh, she said, but stay there. He'll be back shortly. I know he'll want to talk to you. And he got on the phone, and I made amends to him. I said, I'm sorry I just disappeared. And he said, you know something, Keith? He said, he said every month when the Navy Times came out with the list of people who were killed in Vietnam, he said, I immediately turned to the Ellis to see if your name was there. And, uh, and then he said to me, and I said to him, I said, uh, he said, tell me about your life. I said, well, I have two children. And he said, I have four sons. And I said, he said, I said, well, I knew you didn't have any children. And he said, I know. And he said, last night, my youngest son got drunk and got into trouble. He said, this morning, his mother and I prayed to God for guidance. What can we do for him? Why do you suppose that thought came into my mind that morning? I knew a man, a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous in South Bend, and I called him, and he called, and I didn't follow up. It's none of my business. But that's how this program works. Why would I remember that morning? God would use a dirtball like me to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. He'll use any of us. That's the power of this program, once we decide to get involved. You know, an AA has done more for me than I've ever done for AA. I have one brother who's living in Michigan. He's a marvelous man. I just love him. He's probably the best family man. When he was a teenager, he came up and spent a summer with me during my drunkenness up in Maryland. And uh, I threatened him. I was awful. I was just awful to him. And, and he was so angry with me. And I kept praying, and I kept trying to make amends to him. And anything I did, he misinterpreted and uh, so, but I kept praying and kept praying and kept praying. And then he's a foreman in a factory. And uh, one of his men came to him and said, could I have Saturday night off? And he said, uh, why? And he said, well, 
He said, not a lot of people notice, but I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, there's a banquet here, and, and one of my favorite speakers is coming to speak. And he said, it's a funny thing. He's from the same hometown you grew up in. <laughs> and he said, what's his name? And uh, the guy said, Keith. And he said, that's my brother. And uh, so uh, uh, my brother Leonard called me and said, I understand you're coming to Detroit to speak. And I said, I am. I said, would you and uh, your lovely wife join me? And he said, I'd be honored. And he came to the banquet and heard me talk. From then on, we've been just like this. He has five guys working for him now who are members of Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) And, and, you know, things that can't happen, happen if we involve ourselves in this life. And it says we go back as far as our minds can carry us. And, you know, one of the things I discovered was that I had a trait about me. I'd give you a chance, but if you disappointed me, you were done. And I punished you. I found a way to punish you. You know, I'm in the third grade, and I'm hero-worshipping two guys who had been in the third grade a year before me, and they stayed another year. And, uh, <laughs> and I asked them, them why, and they said, well, we like your class better than the other class. And... Um, you know, big guys don't lie, and uh, some he were worshiping a couple of these guys, and uh, they were great athletes, and uh, whenever we'd play on, you know, either football or baseball or anything, I was always on their team. Well, the one guy's name is Richard, and Richard was a really, really kind kid. Even as a kid, he was a very kind person. He's a very kind man, too. But he, um, the, a new kid moved to town, and he wasn't much of an athlete, but just to welcome him, Richard chose him first on a team. So I ended up on the wrong team, and I was crushed. So I had to punish two people. I had to punish the guy who chose me on the wrong team. He threw me the winning touchdown in the end zone. I let it bounce off my chest, and I just glared at him. That's how I punished him. Right? <laughs> but I, my, I really reserved my rear ire for Richard. I wouldn't talk to him. I wouldn't play ball. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't talk to him. So one day at lunchtime, about a week later, he comes over to me, and he says, uh, he says, uh, would you, I got an extra Twinkie. I never met a kid with an extra Twinkie. He said, I got an extra Twinkie. Would you like it? And I said, no. He said, well, why, go ahead. You take it. He said, I, I, I don't care for it. And I said, you sure you don't want it? He said, I'm positive I don't want it. So I took it and threw it on the ground, stepped on it, and walked away. Nice kid. And um, so he's on my list. So Julia and I go to my 20th high school reunion. No, it was my 20th, 20 or 25th. I don't know. It was a long time ago. But uh, so he walks in. He's one of these guys that looked like he did when he was in high school. He still looked young and, you know, athletic and everything. And, uh, and we went over and we hugged and talked for a couple of minutes. I said, you got a couple of minutes? And he said, yeah. And so we went over and sat down. And I explained to him. I said, uh, I said Rich, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, that's a wonderful organization. He said, some of my best friends are members of AA. He said, that's a wonderful organization. I said, part of what we do is we make amends for the damage we've done. And I said, I, said, I, I wanted to make amends to you. He said, for what? He said, we were best friends. He said, you were a, a wonderful friend. And I said, remember when Bobby moved to town and you picked him on a team? He said, yeah, you took my Twinkie and you threw it on the ground and you stepped on it. <laughs> we both started laughing, you know. For my 25th AA birthday, the guys who sponsored me gave me a, a whole box of crushed Twinkies. 
you know, a few months later, a few months later, a friend of Richard's called me out of the blue. Richard had seen him, recognized he had a drinking problem. He also lived in North Carolina. And I got to go 12-step him, and he's sober to this day. It's never an accident. It's never an accident. Now, this whole business of cleaning up the past, of cleaning house, changes not only us, but it changes the world in which we live. And, you know, I had a terrible time uh, making amends to people I loved. It was the hardest thing to do. I tried to go make amends to my ex-wife, and uh, unfortunately she found another one like me. And uh, to give you an idea of the kind of woman I'm married to, uh, our son-in-law's mother passed away, and, uh, and my ex-wife is still on my list. Now, I had made some amends. The IRS helped me a lot. Um, really did. I was, uh, whenever I'd call her up to try to make amends, we'd always end up in an argument. So I went to Sandy and I said, I can't talk to her. He said, well, you're going to have to find another way. He said, ask God to show you a way to make amends. So I get a letter from the IRS. And what had happened is in our divorce agreement, I was to deduct one child and she was to deduct the other. Well, she started deducting both of them. And uh, the IRS knew we didn't have three children between us, so uh, we only had two. So uh, I got this letter, and I made the call. And I, this lady said to me, uh, she said, I under, I've been looking at your past returns, and you've been deducting so-and-so, and she's been deducting so-and-so. And she said, um, if you'll send me a copy of your divorce agreement, we'll bill her. I said, no, no, no. I said, bill me. She said, but you made more money than her. I said, but that doesn't matter. I said, I'm looking for an opportunity to make amends. I said, Bill me. And uh, she said, this is the most unusual conversation I've ever had. <laughs> and I started talking to her about Alcoholics Anonymous. And six months later, she introduced herself to me at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> so there's at least one sober person working for the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, but that started the ball rolling. And... Uh, and, and I always, you know, I, I was so fear-ridden well into my sobriety, so fearful. And uh, I would, uh, if my wife had a bad relationship, she would take me to court. And because um, uh, she was the only guy she had a real handle on, you know, she'd subpoena me. And um, so I said to Sandy one day, I said, I'm moving. He said, where are you going? I said, well, I'm not sure. And uh, I said, I'd probably go to San Diego. He said, no, that'll be the first place they look for you. And... Um, <laughs> He said, you know, I said, well, I'm going to buy a camper, and I'm going to ride around the country. He said, well, it's awfully cold in North Dakota in the wintertime. And I said, I'm not going to North Dakota. And he said, well, you've got to go there. It'll find you. And um, so he said, what's this all about? I said, well, you know, I'm tired of being jerked around by her. And he said, the only reason you're being jerked around by her is you owe her an amends. And he said, uh, once you fix that, nothing she ever does will ever affect you again. And uh, so I said, well, how do I do that? He said, why don't you call her up and ask her what she needs? And I called her up, and she told me the reason she was taking me to court was she wanted more money, and she told me why, and it made sense. And I said, well, that's fine. I said, I'll be glad to do that. Right? And uh, a month later, I get a raise, and after taxes, it came to almost to the penny <laughs> what I'd given her. So I called Sandy up. I said, it's a miracle. <laughs> 
And Sandy said, uh, he said, I'm glad we don't have to find you in that camper to tell you everything's okay. <laughs> and then I began thanking her, and, after, and she had the kindness to call me to tell me she was remarrying. And I said, well, that's very thoughtful of you. And she said, well, I just didn't want you to hear it from somebody else. And not that you care. I said, well, I do. I said, I care for your happiness. And, and I made a big deal out of thanking she and her husband for the great job they did raising the children. And then they were divorced because uh, he developed what I have. And, uh, and our son-in-law's mother died, and uh, we, we drove from Wilmington up to Fayetteville for the, the uh, viewing. And she was there, and the three of us talked for a little bit. And uh, the next day, Julia had to testify in court one of her cases. And uh, so she couldn't go up to the funeral. And I was one of the pallbearers because my son-in-law's mom had a drinking problem, and she didn't have a lot of friends to carry a coffin. And... Uh, so I got some of my friends to carry a coffin. And uh, uh, so when I was leaving, Julia put her arms around and gave me a big kiss. And she said, don't let Marilyn, that's my ex-wife, don't let Marilyn go to the graveyard by herself. She's been through a divorce and things have to be hard for her. And she said, don't let her drive back to Washington, buy her lunch. That's the woman I'm married to. And uh, so I took her to the graveyard and then we went to O'Brien's for lunch, and uh, we were talking, and um, and um, I said to her, I said, uh, she said, you know, Jeff and I are divorced, and he's a terrible drinking problem. I said, I know. I said, I get no pleasure out of that. She said, I know you don't. That's the kind of man you, you are. You wouldn't get pleasure out of someone else's misery. And I said, well, I'm sorry you had to go through that. She smiled, and she said, well, at least time, this time I married a rich one, and she did. And... Uh, <laughs> She developed a sense of humor because she had gone to Al-Anon, had found Al-Anon, and began to develop a sense of humor and to begin to develop a spiritual life. She's an absolutely marvelous human being. And I was able to make those direct amends to her. And she said to me, you've turned into the kind of man that I knew you could be when I met you. She said, but only the grace of God in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and all those people I wanted you to stay away from could have made that happen. So it always works out exactly the way it's supposed to. You know, we continue to take personal inventory. And when we're wrong, we promptly admit it. You know, and uh, Dick talked about the annual house cleaning. And um, my buddy Mike Way and I did our annual house cleaning every year. We did it together. And... Um, I made an observation one time to Mike, and he uh, forced me to follow up on it. Um, what I said to him was, you know, I said, even drunk, the only thing I ever seemed to be successful at was whatever I was doing for a living. You know, when I was in the service, even drunk, every promotion was a meritorious promotion, uh, all that stuff. I always had good... Uh, conduct proficiency ratings, like a 4849 or something like that, and out of 50. And, and, and I look back over my work life, and my work life had always been very, very successful, or reasonably successful. And I said to Mike, I believe the reason for that is there were written something called a job description. It's written down. With my job, I always knew precisely what was expected of me. I guessed it the rest of life. And so you know what I've done? You'll think this is bizarre. I did, Scott and I had talked about this one time. 
I wrote job descriptions for every role that God's given me. I have a job description as a husband. I wrote it out. What are my responsibilities? What are my benefits? I underlined the benefits. Um, <laughs> as a father, a father of adult children, no longer little children. Uh, as a grandfather, and on and on. And so now I know precisely what's expected of me. And I see every role in my life as a job. It's a job that God has given me. And every year when I do my annual house cleaning, I assess my performance. And every year I try to raise the bar. I don't want to just get by. I want to improve. I don't want to just be a good husband. I want to be a better husband. Part of my prayer every morning, I try to spend an hour morning in prayer. When I'm at home and I'm on my way to work, I usually go by the Eucharistic Chapel and spend a fair amount of time in prayer. And... Um, and uh, one of the things that I, part of my prayer is every day I pray, I ask God to let me love Julia more than she loves me. And every night when I look at my day, I feel as though I failed. Her response to me trying to love her more, to be more considerate of her, to be more thoughtful, is to respond by beating me to it. You know, I, I hearken back to when my first wife's father died. Um, her mother called and uh, said, is Keith there? And she said, no, he's probably on his way home from work. I wasn't on my way home from work. I was on my way to Chadwick's. And um, so she called back two hours later and said, is Keith home yet? And finally, Marilyn said, what's wrong, mother? And she said, your father died. I come staggering in at midnight. My wife, who's eight and a half months pregnant with our first child, is sitting on the living room floor, and the carpet around her was soaked with tears. She's there alone because her husband's drunk in a bar. And we went out and did the funeral and all that stuff. And uh, I'm married to, uh, to Julia years later. I'm down in Wilmington doing something. We're living in Fayetteville, and, uh, and I, I had a day-long seminars I was doing and training and things, and... Uh, and so we finished up, we went to dinner, we came back, and uh, the receptionist said, there's an emergency phone call, you, you have to call your wife. So I called her, and she was crying and said, mother passed away. And I said, I'll be right there. And I called a guy I sponsor, who he and his wife immediately went over to our house. Of course, they took chicken. If somebody dies in the South, chicken shows up, you know. And... Um, <laughs> and uh, so I get there, and... Uh, my two friends are there uh, watching over Julia, and I held her in my arms, and, uh, and I was there. I was there in two hours, and, uh, and I wasn't drunk. I was sober because I had been hanging out with you folks. And the next day, we went over, and we made all the funeral arrangements with her father and all that stuff. And I'm, and I'm, I'm holding her in bed, and she's crying. I'm just holding her in my arms. And uh, with no ulterior motives other than to comfort her. And at the very end, when I'm about to do my uh, uh, night inventory, I'm thinking that maybe today's the day that I loved her more than she loved me. And at the very end, she looked at me and she said, can you forgive me? And I said, for what? She said, for being so selfish. I said, what are you talking about? She said, 
She said, you've been holding me and comforting me, but you love mother too. I'm sorry you lost her. And I thought, I came so close. (laughs) You know, the... um, the, uh, the tenth step is so very, very important. It really is, because that's the step that points out the areas of my life that need improvement. Uh, I have very close friends who are very honest with me. Dick is one of them. And he shares honestly with me anything he suspects is wrong in my approach to life. He's usually wrong. No, I'm just kidding. No, 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 no. No, but he, he cares enough about me. He loves me enough to do that. And I have friends who will do that. And I, I ask people in my life to do that. If you see anything that looks even slightly ajar or slightly amiss, please tell me about it. Because I need to know how to improve. You know, Bill talks a lot about delusion in the big book. We don't talk about denial, okay? That's a, that's a treatment term. Delusion is known, you know, it ain't what you don't know, it's known things that just ain't so. And I, when, as my alcoholism developed, I developed a trait, okay? What I have is a trial attorney in my head that was able to justify everything I did, okay? I've been trying to fire that attorney for 32 years now. But every once in a while, he still shows up. And he gives me a justification for my behavior, you know? And I'll say, you stay out of this. <laughs> you know? and, um, and so then what I do is I run that justification, knowing it's just a justification. I run it by. You know, I hearken back uh, to, you know, I was raised with these values. You know, when I was a kid, we had an old lady who lived in a neighborhood, okay? And they had come from Poland in the 30s. And her husband had died. And her, fo- her son was killed in the Second World War. So she was alone. She was an old lady, and she was alone. And uh, one of the things we did was we took care of the old lady. We never went by her house to go to the grocery store. We didn't stop and see if she needed something. Right? And um, so, uh, and then we would go over on weekends. We lived by the steel mills and the coal mines, and soot would settle all the time. And everybody's favorite thing was to scrub their front porch so you wouldn't track dirt into the house. We'd go by and scrub her porch and cut her grass, and she'd always try to give us a penny or something. We'd say no. But she baked cookies and told us stories about the old country. We took those. And, uh, and uh, the summer I was 12 years old, I made the startling discovery that girls might not be quite as dumb as I thought they were. And, um, and uh, the baseball field, I played second base for the Cubs, and the baseball, my brother Denny played shortstop. He was a year younger than me. And uh, he hadn't made this discovery yet. Uh, but I used to go to the ball game like two hours early so I could parade around the, the uh, swimming pool so they could admire me in my uniform. And, um, and Denny used to say, why are we going so early? I'd say, shut up. And, um, and so one day uh, I'm getting ready to go down to parade around in front of them in their bathing suits. And uh, my mother said, son, would, before you go, would you run down and get me a loaf of bread? I said, sure, mom. So I got the money and I took off and I got to the old lady's house and I stopped. It's called a crisis in values. Okay? Now I have a theory. If you got an old lady and a bunch of young ladies, the young ladies usually win. Right? 
So I didn't stop. I ran on down to the store. I got the bread my mother wanted. I came back. I took my brother, Dumb Danny, and we're headed down to the swimming pool. And I feel bad. It's called guilt. Guilt's a gift from God. And early in AA, I thought guilt was an enemy. I said to an old guy, how do I stop this guilt? He said, well, stop doing the things that make you feel guilty. (laughs) I said, is there another way? He said, well, there are pills, but we don't recommend those. (laughs) You know? And then he, um, so I'm, I'm headed down to the state. Now, I'm raised by, by really principled people, right? And I'm feeling terrible. And I said to my brother, Denny, I said, I feel bad. He said, why? And I told him what I had done. And he said, I'm glad you told me that. He said, I did the same thing yesterday. He said, the guys wanted to go swimming. And he said, she's so slow. You know, she walked like this, you know. So I said to him, I said, look, I said, Saturday, let's go over. We'll scrub her walk in her porch. And I said, we'll cut her grass. Denny said, yeah, we'll let her bake cookies. And, uh, and tell us stories about the old country. And so when I was 12 years old, I knew what to do when I violated principles. I shared it with God and another human being, and I made amends. I knew what to do. Ten years later, or eight years later, I'm in the Marine Corps. I'm on, I'm, I'm on duty, right? I was duty NCO for the company. And you pull that about every three weeks. And when the first sergeant everybody went home, you know, you were in charge of the company, and you had an assistant duty. At a Lance Corporal, it was an assistant duty. And you frequently, you're checking people out on leave and liberty and that sort of thing, so you frequently miss, miss dinner. So then you run up to the NCO club. If you wear your duty belt, they take you in right away. They feed you right away so you can get back. And so I go up to my room, and I take the belt off. It's time to drink. I never would have drank on duty. So I'm walking up to the NCO club, and here's my thought process. Well, you trained with the French Legion. They have uh, alcohol in the field. You were aboard a British frigate. They drink every day. If you were in the Russian army, you could drink. By the time I got there, I ordered to the Marine Corps to drink. And, um, and I can tell you what I had for dinner that night. I had frog's legs. And I could tell you what I drank. You know? And I came back, and I felt so guilty at what I had done. But I didn't tell anybody because they wanted my commission. I knew that. They, all they wanted to do was do their time and get out. They didn't want my commission. So what I did was I, the way I learned to deal with life was I shined my brass. I put on a new uniform. I put on my ribbons and my badges. Uh, I, uh, you know, and I went to, and I worked harder than I ever worked. That's the way I dealt with guilt. That's how I fixed the past. The next day you go in and the first sergeant's going to sign me off, you know, sign me off duty. And uh, so I turn around, he signs a log, I turn around, I start out, he said, uh, Louis, uh, he said, have a seat. And my heart stopped. Somebody saw me. And he said, you know, he said, uh, he said, I'm doing some training in NCO school, leadership school. And he said, one of the big flaws I have is he said, if you make a mistake, I'm quick to jump on you. He said, but if you do a good job, I'm slow to praise you. And he said, I want you to know that whenever you're on duty, I never think about this place because you're the finest NCO I have in my outfit. It was like he put an ice pick in my heart. I, if he'd have told me that three weeks before, before I had that drink on duty, I'd have left there five feet off the ground. He was the finest Marine I ever knew. But now I left there angry with him. And I made that discovery one day when doing a 10th step, when I went back through those things. You know, and... Uh, and I called up at Camp Lejeune and uh, got a hold of somebody I knew in the area, uh, a master sergeant who's a member of the fellowship. 
And uh, he knew a lot of the guys in uniform, men and women in uniform, who were sober. And then he called over at, at uh, Fort Bragg and invited a number of them over. And I went up and I made amends by doing a, a two-day workshop on the 12 Steps. I made amends to the Marine Corps for violating their principles. Every time I was ever on duty, from then on I drank. The hardest time to do it is the first time. That's what happens to our character. Once that lawyer in my head justified the first time, it was a given from then on. Um, you know, we get to the 11th step. You know, and the 11th step is without a doubt one of the most beautiful things ever done. We sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Only the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. My sponsor gave me some marvelous advice one day. He said to me, he noticed, and I'd already I'd done this amends with the religious people and all that stuff, and... Uh, and my life was beginning to make a little bit of sense to me. And he said to me, why don't you go back to the church of your childhood and this time leave for a good reason? He said, the reason you left before was bogus. This time leave for a good reason. And, you know, I did. I went back to the church of my childhood. I tried to suspend judgment. And I've never left. Because what it did was it reconnected me to that childhood where I had parents who lived this life in ways that were absolutely amazing. It reconnected me to the values that I grew up with. The mother who would be glad and happier to see a woman who really needs a car get a car rather than her get a car. And uh, it reconnected me to absolutely everything. I'm going to talk tonight about the amends with my parents and my brother and that sort of thing But uh, when I tell my story. But, but uh, this whole business of growing spiritually. You know, I was a guy, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I couldn't remember much of anything that happened in my childhood. And one day I figured out why that happened. I was so surrounded by people of character and by love that I had to deny that it ever happened. Because the lawyer in my head had convinced me that the reason I turned out the way I turned out was because of them. And I couldn't look at any counterindicating evidence. And the 11th step invited me to look at the evidence. It showed me that there are a set of principles by which I can live my life. Where did you learn those principles? I learned those principles at my father's knee. I learned those principles watching my mother live the way she lived. She was a woman who never finished high school. She was an illegitimate child. She never had a birth certificate. And I remember her telling me this story. And uh, she, was, she sat down, and we were down at my beach house, and uh, they had gone up to Ohio, and they'd come back down. And, uh, and we're, she's telling me this story, and she said, she said, I am so grateful that I'm married to your father, and I'm so grateful you're our children. And I said, why, Mom? And she said, you know, she said, I went to get my Social Security. And she said, I, uh, I, had, I couldn't prove who I was because I didn't have a birth certificate. And so what she did was she took everything we had ever, her children had ever accomplished. She had my honorable discharge. She had my brother Mark's discharge from the Navy. She had, 
all our degrees. She had copies of everything to prove she was somebody. And she's 62 years of age. And uh, my father was with her, and my father's sister was with her. She was there to testify. And she had their wedding certificate, which they got without a birth certificate. I guess you could do that. And uh, so the man's looking at all this stuff. And he said, oh, this is very interesting, Mrs. Lewis, but I still don't know who you are. My father's 72 years old. But he's a man of character. He wasn't a mean man. He was a strong man. And he stepped forward and said, sir, that woman's my wife. And, uh, and my mother said, the man grabbed the pen and signed the paper. <laughs> <laughs> she said, I'm Scott Lewis's wife. She said, I'm the mother of Scott, Patty, Keith, Danny, Terry, Leonard, Larry, Henry, Kathy, Susie, and Mark. She said, but most of all, she said, I'm a child of a God who loves me so much that he surrounded me by people who love me. And I'm thinking, she's a love machine. And I learned so very, very much just by watching how she lived her life. She carried this big purse because she kept pictures in it. And if you sat down next to her and there was a law in the conversation, the pictures would come out. <laughs> but she was an extraordinary woman. She, she read a book a day her entire life. She'd stay up half the night. She, she, she functioned on two hours sleep. My father, actually, he's a machinist, so he made her a thing that held the book on the ironing board because she'd be ironing half the night, you know, because we all went to Catholic school, so we wore white shirts and ties and white blouses. I didn't wear blouses. My sister did. But... Um, <laughs> But, uh, and then the other thing, like when we, we'd pray before we ate, and then we'd have to listen to either a grammatical rule or a definition of a word, because we'd come up with a word a week, we learned a word a week, and we'd have to use it three times during the course of the week in our conversation. And I remember one, one time it was gaggle, and everybody's talking at the dinner table at once, and I said to my mother, I said, I live with a gaggle of idiots. She said, very good, son, very good. And, uh, <laughs> but, um, but a funny thing happened. She was going in for heart surgery, and uh, we're all, all her children are grown now and, uh, and everything, and, and we're up at the hospital in Pittsburgh, and uh, they had given her the joy juice, you know, so she's high as a Georgia pine, and she never drank or anything. And, and so they're wheeling her into surgery. She said, stop. And they stopped the gurney, and she got up on one elbow. She said, boys, look at me. We looked at her. She said, never, never, never end a sentence with a preposition. <laughs> and the surgeon said, I never heard anybody say that before going into surgery. <laughs> but, you know, once I began to meditate on the life, that I, the real life I lived, not the one I created, not the one the lawyer in my head put together for me to justify me, but the real life I lived. And I remember when my mother, when the last child graduated from high school, my mother went back to high school and graduated. Then she took her SATs and she outscored all of us. And I said, Mom, that's marvelous. She said, oh, it's nothing, son. She said, you know, I've been through high school 12 times. And uh, it's absolutely a brilliant woman. And I had blocked all of that out until the 11th step of Alcoholics Anonymous came into play in my life. Prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God. That means my conscious contact with my past 
because God was alive in my past. God's hand was on me in my past. I'm alive today because of the grace of a loving God. You know, one of the things I discovered when I followed my sponsor's advice and came back to the church of my childhood, I don't often talk about this. A couple of reasons. One, it's very sensitive to me. And number two, it disturbs some people. Um, But you'll get over it. Um, (laughs) You know, I uh, stood in front of a mirror, much like Dick did that last day. And I didn't have a gun, but uh, I had a medicine cabinet full of drugs. And I never took anything but alcohol. I thought if God made anything better than alcohol, he kept it for himself. But I worked in a hospital. I could literally take anything I wanted out of the brewer in the hospital. So I had a medicine cabinet full of drugs, none of which I ever took. And I decided to take them all. And I, uh, I discovered this as part of the 11th step. I stood in front of the mirror, and I screamed out loud, you're 29 years old, at least it'll be over. And a woman spoke to me, a woman's voice, which amazed me because I didn't care much for women. And uh, many men who come to Alcoholics Anonymous are very angry with women. They have so much power in our lives. They can make us feel good about ourselves or bad about ourselves or any of that stuff. So I was shocked at it. And a woman said, it's just starting. And I was startled. And I immediately remembered, like my mind cleared for a moment, and I remembered my estranged wife had given me a phone number. And I called it. And it was to the little treatment center Ernie the attorney had started. And I called him, and they knew how to talk to me. I hung up the phone and there was a half a fifth of scotch on the draining board. And I knew I couldn't take a drink. I knew if I drank, I'd die. I knew that if I would finish the job. And I knew, also knew I was powerless over the stuff in that bottle. And I picked up the bottle and I started to pour it out and I knew I wouldn't. And I stepped back and hurled the bottle as hard as I could and it shattered all over the kitchen. If that bottle had bounced, you'd have a different speaker. But, um, but this woman spoke to me. And it was so clear to my head and to my mind. And I uh, uh, didn't die. And I hadn't had a drink from that day till this one. I go back to the church of my childhood. And I remembered that when I was a little kid, we have a, you know, in the Catholic church, we have a great devotion to the mother of Jesus, Mary. And uh, I was dedicated to Our Lady of Fatima. We wore these little page outfits and they knighted us. And Catholics are always lined up by size, so I was the first one. And so I carried a little sword, and they knighted me, and I was a knight of Fatima and everything. And the bishop said, the worst day of your life, the mother of God will be there for you. And I remember something about Fatima, and I went back and got a book on Fatima, and I picked it up, and I opened to the first page, and I burst into tears. Mary supposedly appeared in Fatima on May the 13th, 1917. My sobriety date's May the 13th, 1973. It hit me like a ton of bricks, that even though... I had drawn a curtain on my past. I had drawn a curtain on my life. I had drawn a curtain on God. They still reached through the curtain of sickness and insanity and changed my life. People say to me, why do you keep going? Well, there are a number of reasons. People like Don P and people like that are the reason I keep going. But the real reason I keep going is I can't even pay the interest on the principle that I owe you people. I owe you and God absolutely everything. Why would I not pay you? Why would I not do whatever I can do for the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous? Why would I not serve mankind any way I can? 
I'm not supposed to be here. But for the grace of God and a fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I watch Dick's movie, I weep every time. Because when I think of the power, when these principles come together, nothing new was discovered in 1935. It all came together. I believe the God of my understanding said, these men and women have suffered enough. I want to use them, their talents, their experience, their strength, and their hope to change the world in which they live. That's the great promise. We always read the promises. One time somebody said to me, would you please read the promise out of the big book? And I said, yes. That having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, (laughs) which is the great promise of Alcoholics Anonymous, not if you have a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, but having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. You know, the problem that I often see is there's so much about me in AA meetings and not about the alcoholic who still suffers. And, you know, uh, my home group in Wilmington was a midtown group. And uh, we, uh, I, I talked to them in, I, after I joined the group, there was a small group, but then it grew to about 100 people, but uh, it was a small group in the beginning. And I said, we need to do a group inventory. Are we reaching out to the newcomer? And, you know, we all concluded that we weren't. We were going there, so we left feeling better. As a group, we weren't carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. How can you do that if you've had a spiritual awakening as a result of it? And that's why I'm convinced that what we need to do every so often is to do the steps again. Last night I was talking. I'm sponsoring a couple guys around that 10-year period. 10 years is a very dangerous time, I found. Six years is a very dangerous time for me. So I did the steps again in six years. I did them at 10 years, 10 to 12 years, around 12 years, I guess. I did them again at 20 years. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I dig deeper and deeper into that kit of spiritual tools that have been provided for us? And, uh, you know, and uh, I think that... uh, Clarence Snyder was right. You know, you take Adam for a long time. And then he says, one day they're taken. And then you spend your life cleaning it up with 10, 11, and 12. But 12 is the only thing that makes it different. Guy said to me one time, he said, "Uh, you put yourself down. And I said, no, I tell the truth about myself. And he said, "Uh, how are you ever going to have a decent self-image? And I said to him, you know how I know I have a decent self-image? I said, I go on 12-step calls. I still do. I go on 12-step calls. And I look in the eyes of a new man, and he sees someone he wants to be. It's not who I am. It's who you made me. I injured my back back in August, and I'm wearing this big neck brace. And I got a call. A guy was in a flea bag motel on Route 441 down in Ocala. And he'd been in AA, he'd been sober for a while, he'd gotten drunk and he'd gone all the way down. And he comes out of it, I'm sitting on the side of a bed holding his hand, telling him my story. 
and he burst into tears. And once my back was okay, he asked me if he could have the neck brace and put it on his bookshelf. The guy said to me, why, if you had a bad back, would you go do a 12-step call? I said, why wouldn't I go do a 12-step call if I had a bad back? Why wouldn't I take the opportunity to forget about me and bask in the graces of a loving God who in 1935 brought all of this together in one spot on the corner of a town in Ohio? Why wouldn't I? I'm glad Dick made that movie because it reminds people that Alcoholics Anonymous started in Ohio. I, I like that for people from California. <laughs> I love you and thank you very much.